0: Here's the host of the Talent Talk radio show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey
1: everyone, welcome to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, which means we are here with two fantastic guests to learn, to talk, to ask questions, and to hopefully learn something that we can use in our own career uh, in a a positive way. So this is really what the show is all about, having these remarkable leaders here, uh, talking to these very talented people about how they manage talent, what they've been seeing out there, what books are they reading, what are they thinking about, worried about, you know, anything that we can we can use. And so many of their stories over the years have actually been big parts of of the books that I've written uh, and the work that I do uh, with companies as a consultant, and of course in my own companies that I run. So. Uh, if you're interested in, in any of that, you can check out my first book, a bestseller called The Power of Company Culture. And then my recent book that just came out this year, also hit the bestseller list, Remote Work. Uh, you know, go to Amazon or wherever you find books. I'm sure you'll have no trouble finding it uh, if you found this radio show. So um, as I mentioned, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We love our live audience. They come in, they follow us on Twitter, at PeopleG2, and ask questions and comment and Uh, really are part of the conversation. But if you're not coming in live, that's okay. You can still uh, connect with us on Twitter and you can also make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening to this show. If it's iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, just subscribe that way. You make sure you always get uh, the next episode and find out what the next amazing leader is thinking about and talking about. All right, speaking of my guest today, uh, we will first bring in uh, Mark Hirschberg. He's the MIT instructor, author, and CTO. And then this is sort of our, our very technical group today. And then we're going to have in uh, Steve Orr, he's a federal CTO at Intel. So uh, hopefully we won't get too technical for everybody. I think these guys are pretty adept at being able to, uh, I don't want to say dumb it down for us, but let's not take us too too technical. So but let's go ahead and bring in Mark Hirschberg. Uh, welcome to the show, sir.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I know you're an MIT instructor, you're a CTO, you're an author as well uh, of the career toolbook, Essential Skills for Success that No One Taught You. Uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit of what else is important for us to know about you so we can have a great conversation today?
2: My primary career is building typically startup companies, whether classic startups or helping Fortune 500s who want to innovate. But what I realized early in my career were that there were these other non technical skills I needed to succeed. Yes, I knew how to program and I was pretty good at, but to be the leader I wanted to become, I had to learn leadership skills, communication, negotiation, networking. And so I've had this side career where I've been teaching now for 20 years at MIT and elsewhere, trying to help develop these professional skills in our workforce, because unfortunately, it's not normally taught at the high school or college level.
1: You know, in sort of preparing for our conversation today, I was suddenly remembered an old lesson that I received. I took like an extra uh, sort of networking course when I was in, in, in um, actually it was after I graduated, I went back into some little like extra courses. I did one on like, you know, Windows NT or something, right? And I'm sure whatever I learned in that, I probably couldn't help me in today's uh, technology. But I do remember my professor saying over and over and over again, whenever something wouldn't work or we couldn't figure out how to do something, he always said, always check permissions. And it was always, he was always right when it came to the problem with the technical side of it, right? There was always something not turned on, something with permissions wasn't, wasn't correct. Right. That wasn't sort of stopping me. But over the years, I evolved that advice into the human side of it. When I wasn't getting the reaction from people or the, the buy-in from people or the, you know, the expect, whatever I expected from them and behavior I always remember go back and check permissions. Like, do I have the permission to that with them to move forward? Do they have the permission to even say yes to me or no to me? Like, you know, there's so much about that that sort of is a, it's a soft skill, right? Um, and, and I don't know if, if, if you've you've sort of seen that as well.
2: Absolutely. Certainly we know when negotiating, are you the person I should negotiate with or is it your boss or someone else in the company? Am I wasting my time if you're not that right person? Or maybe you're the gatekeeper I have to get through. When it comes to networking, a common mistake is, oh, hey, Chris, I want to meet you. Nice to meet you. Can you do me this favor? Can you get me this job? Whoa, slow down. We just met. Do we have that permission, that relationship that you're willing to open a door for me? Even going to your earlier comment about communication, about Steve and I, not dumbing down, but how do we translate what's in our language, vocabulary, our mental models to people who don't have that? And how do all of us, no matter what our background is, we all carry a certain background and context. How do we make sure we can communicate in the context of our audience? These are all important skills that we never talk about in school.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you've you've landed on one of the big maybe big two or three concepts that I think makes a great leader. They have to be able to communicate effectively and foster good communication as well amongst their organization. It's not just enough for them to do it really well. if Everyone else is doing it terribly, right? Uh, how, How else would you define good leadership?
2: Leadership is diverse and we could have two people come up with completely different lists. In the book, I really focus on the fundamentals of leadership because so many people, particularly early in their career, although early can be even throughout their 20s, 30s, sometimes in their 40s, think of leadership positionally, coming from you have a title, and not true influential leadership, which is what companies always want. They want people to stand up and take initiative. Now, of course, we can say, well, a leader is someone who can put forth an idea and have other people follow, but to be effective, as you're asking, There's a myriad of skills, which includes communication, includes having a strong network, knowing how to negotiate, knowing how to even manage people can help make you an effective leader, even though we typically distinguish management from leadership. So all of these skills can help support you to be more effective in your leadership. And the great thing is for developing leaders, you don't have to wait till you are standing out front as a leader to work on these skills. You can develop them even when you're not a leader, so when you do step forward, you have the skills at the ready.
1: Yeah, and one of the, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is that uh, to be a good leader, often uh, the, sort of the more I learn about how to be a good leader and the more I'm able to put things in practice, kind of the harder it is to do. And, and and what I mean by that is I have found that ultimately if if I do it right, if I get everything right about leadership, then my my Team, the people that I'm most uh, often interacting with, should feel like I didn't have anything to do with it, like that they were able to be successful, get their job done, you know, reach the goal, whatever, and I and that I wasn't some part of that. I mean, I was, if they really think about it, right? I'm 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 there creating the environment, in the periphery, but I'm not in there doing the work. Right? I'm not standing there. Doing the thing with them or making that thing happen right alongside them, they're able to do that themselves. Uh, and I don't know how much of that translates into what you're talking about, what the because there is influential versus positional leadership. You know, it, it, is that the high level, in your opinion, that you can really, you know, empower people to do their best work without you being a bottleneck? I guess in, in that process.
2: You've hit on two important points here. The first, as you noted. The more you learn, you feel it becomes even more complex. And that's because when we start out as leaders or really with any of these skills, we have this very narrow view. Well, a leader just tells people what to do. Okay, that's easy, I'm gonna tell others what to do. Then you start to realize, well, no, it's not ordering other people around, it's influencing them, it's supporting them, it's helping, it's mentoring, it's guiding, it's planning. Okay, there's a lot more to do. And so we start to say, oh, there's a whole bunch of things I have to focus on. It gets more complex. And that's why we as leaders always need to continue to learn and evolve. Now, then to your second point, what the best leaders know is leadership is not zero sum. If I am the leader in charge of the company, I don't say, well, Chris, you, you shouldn't be leading. That's my job. I say, Chris, I want you to stand up and lead and stand next to me at times even stand in front of me mm-hmm. because we together can do more. You are not eclipsing or limiting my leadership and good leaders know how to elevate and support other people. In my book, one of the things I teach, I put this in the management section, a good manager is a lazy manager. What do we mean? When I manage teams, every time I have to make a decision, that means I had to be there and I couldn't be doing something else. If I can empower my team to make that decision, either by giving them the authority or having a process in place to guide that decision, Now I don't have to do that and I can use my time and energy to do something else that adds yet more value to the company. And so all of us as leaders and managers want to empower and help our teams and organizations and systems to really do as much as possible without us. So
1: if someone out there listening maybe is just starting their leadership journey or feeling like maybe their leadership journey has hit a a bit of a, a bump in the road, Uh, is there maybe one or two qualities you think they should really focus in on to kind of jumpstart that process?
2: I would not say there's just one or two. And here's one of the challenges I often see in HR. HR says, we want leaders. Or when we're hiring, we want someone who is a leader. That can mean many things. The leader who says, I am going to grow this team or this business, from a small size to medium to large, that's a different type of leadership than you bring someone in when you have a demoralized team and say you have to reinvigorate them, or a leader who inspires, or a leader who transforms, or a leader who can bring together warring factions. They're all important types of leadership, but they are different, and any leader may not be equally strong at each of them. So it's important to say, what do we mean when we want someone to be a leader, or when you want to develop as a leader, in what way, And it might be all of them, but you're not going to do all of it at once. So, what do you want? It's like you want a basketball player. Well, someone who's a good shooter, a good defender, a good passer, what do you want? And focus on those particular skills, then move on to others.
1: Yeah. And then that's filling, I guess, filling in the gaps, right? If organizations can really figure out what they need. And I've seen very few be good at that. Um, There are some, but to really understand, geez, we have a lot of extroverted inspiring leaders and yet we probably need some introverted like really run the team get things done you know doesn't need the, the center of attention but it can be really results oriented right and that's leadership too i think we make that big mistake that leadership is always some hollywood version right of a person who's just loud and and overly inspiring and just you know i don't know like you're the best coach you ever had in sports or something because a lot of my best leaders are quiet. They listen a lot. Uh, they 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 really understand what's happening in the organization, and they can get things moving quickly, right? Without being a loud mouth. Now, there's anything wrong with extroverts? I am one, uh, but you know that's not the only leadership style, right?
2: <laughs> this is this is a very important point, and I address it in the section the myth of the alpha male, because mm-hmm. we do have this Hollywood view. Think 1950s leading man stands right. up, takes charge, and from just our cultural norms this is what we're brought up seeing as a leader and this is what many people look for as a leader and what happens is companies because we have this bias within us we look for that extrovert we look for that loud decisive person and we miss out on other at times even better leaders who have a different leadership style so it's very important even if you do not want to be a leader to understand leadership to understand the different styles and recognize what is leadership and what do you look for so you don't follow the wrong leader.
1: Yeah, and, and I think once you, I guess once you have figured that out, if you have your good leadership in, in there, and to your point, you said maybe you don't want to be the leader. I mean, I know lots of people that say, it's not what I want to do. I'm, I'm really good at what I do, but I don't necessarily need to go and lead a team as well. Um, I can go and be the best salesperson or the best IT person, but I don't want to be in charge of everybody. So what, what's sort of that, I guess, relationship then between you know leading and, and, and following?
2: One of the things that is very important to understand is that leadership and management skills, in fact, all the skills in the book, negotiating, networking, communicating, these are not skills that belong to a title. These are skills that we all use every day. Because even if you don't directly manage people, well, all of us do manage people, not maybe in the hierarchy, but you and I have to work together on some project, maybe with other people. How do I convince you to do this part that I'm not as good at? Or how do we trade off? We have to maybe negotiate between us. I have to convince you that, hey, I need you to do this little extra work that you didn't think you needed to do for the project. Those are some management techniques, even if I am not formally managing you. And then, of course, the leadership piece, because it's not positional, it's standing up and saying, hey, everyone, wait a second, I have an idea and I want to convince you all of it. So all of these skills are skills that each of us need, no matter where we are in the hierarchy. And even if you never want that leadership or management title, investing in these skills are going to make you more effective as an individual contributor.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I loved uh, in your book that you wrote about was this idea that people can practice leadership. Uh, and I think you said practice it every day, and uh, this is this is a concept that has, I don't know, I don't understand why we don't do more of this because, at least at least as Americans, as the average American has played some sport, right? Uh, even as a child, you might have done one year of soccer or, or baseball or something like you. You understand this concept of. We go and we practice, and in fact, with sports, we practice ninety-nine percent of the time, and we only really go and execute in a real competitive situation one percent of the time. Um, you know, even even our PE in school, it's just practicing. Right? We do all this practice, practice, practice. It's school. It's practice, practice, practice before we actually take a test, and yet we come to work, and it's nope. You are on. We are in full game mode, and there is no practice anymore. So how do, how do people put this in place? Where, where can they find that good practice so they can be better leaders?
2: There are lots of things you can do to practice your leadership, practice your negotiations, practice these skills. But let's look at a very simple, lightweight one that any company can implement for all their employees. What you want to do is create peer learning groups. Too much of our training is either none at all or, oh, Chris, you're a rising star, so we're going to send you to a two-day seminar you and a few other lucky winners, go do it, come back, now you're ordained as a leader, right? Because in two days, clearly you learned everything. Instead, we wanna create these small peer learning groups and you can create groups as small as six or eight people. There are also ways to scale it to larger groups. What you wanna do is have folks read some content together. And yes, you can do it with my book, you can do it with any other book, content online, even listen to great podcasts like this one and each week, have them listen to that content, get that content, and then together have a discussion about it. Because as much as we want everyone to stand up and lead, you can't always create that circumstance where, okay, Chris, we're giving you a chance to lead now. But what we can do is as we sit around, talk about leadership circumstances, ones from your past, from my past, a circumstance I'm facing right now, and I can get your input on it. And mm-hmm. as we discuss this, This will help us learn and formulate our understanding. This, by the way, is how we teach at MIT. And this is how top business schools teach it. So this is a proven method that companies can implement for effectively little or no money.
1: Right, right. And it's just so important. So we have like very specific meetings that we do like once a month where we practice meeting and we practice disagreeing and we practice, you know, and it's like, it amazes me how if we don't do that every month, we sort of lose a little of that psychological safety. We lose a little bit of that edge, our ability to to really, then it sort of sets us up for the rest of the month to be able to be really open and honest and have good disagreements, right? Have have a, you know, uh, you, you don't, I, I was. I was worried in a meeting if everyone agrees and everyone just thinks what I said was correct. I'm like, Oh, there's something going on here. This is not good. Like someone needs to disagree with me uh, in order to feel better about, you know, whatever my idea was,
2: (laughs) you know, so. Here's how we should think about when I teach negotiations, I give the example, imagine you're a 25 year old, you have this job opportunity for $60,000, but because you learned a little about negotiations, you negotiate a thousand dollars more. So you get 61000 If you do nothing else in your career, you just got $1,000 more for the next 40 years. That one tiny negotiation, this isn't solving world peace, tiny negotiation that took five minutes, gets you $40,000. And of course yeah. we know you're not gonna stay in that job for 40 years. You'll have promotions, raises, other jobs. Learning to negotiate can add tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to your bottom line. Now, let's think about this generally. With leadership, no one's going to say, you're a better leader, here's $1,000 more, but it's going to open up opportunities for you. You're going to get better opportunities. You're going to get better jobs, better promotions. All of these skills, if you just get a tiny bit better, it adds up, right? You get this massive compounding effect. If in an organization, everyone in your company got 2% better at communicating, what would that do to your bottom line? So it's not about trying to take a few people and make them superstars, just elevating everyone a tiny amount on these skills, which is really easy considering the baseline we're coming from, has a massive ROI on your company's effectiveness.
1: And and I love the $40,000 example. And I would even argue that there's probably more money uh, and value to you hidden in there because the, the, the crazy part about the psychology of negotiation is that people want to negotiate. So if you, don't settle for that initial offer and you negotiate yourself for something. They feel like the people you're negotiating with feel like they got a better deal because and a, a better employee because you advocated for yourself, you negotiated, and they think, well, that person's going to go do that for me every day inside the company. And I, whereas if I took the first offer right away, they might go, geez, did I offer too much? Is this person desperate? Did they just, you know, did I hire the right person? And now there's doubt, right? And you can't ever un- undo that. Um, so it, it, that, that psychology is always fascinates me.
2: And you hit upon a deeper part of this because sometimes HR will say, wait, wait, I'm teaching my employees to negotiate better. They're all going to ask for more money. Well, yes, but first of all, they're going to get more money from your partners, from your customers, from your suppliers, mm-hmm. but also the people we negotiate most often with tend to be our coworkers. And so learning to negotiate better with our coworkers just makes us overall much more effective and creates better outcomes within the organization.
1: Well, Mark, we're uh, almost out of time here. I wanna ask two quick questions. Uh, First, is there a book that you're reading right now or a resource or something that you think uh, our listeners should check out?
2: I just read my friend Charles Vogel's The uh, Storytelling for Leadership, which I think is a, a great book. And I list a number of fantastic books on my website. Some that I reference, others are just good general resources.
1: Well, that's the second question is how can people find out more about you? What's your website or or where should they, they go to find out more?
2: You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can get in touch with me or follow me online. You can download the free companion app for the book, which is available from Apple and Android, and linked from the website. There's a whole resources page where I list these other books. I have a free download, how you can create these learning groups within your company. All these resources and everything else on my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com.
1: Well, Mark, you've been a spectacular guest today. I know we had tons more to get to, so hopefully we can have you come back at some point and we can dive in deeper and you can give us an update on all the amazing stuff that you're doing. But uh, thank you again so much for being on the show today.
2: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it.
1: All right, we'll be right back after, after this quick commercial break and bring in my second guest, uh, Steve Oren.
3: Imagine buying a newspaper. The news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? visit peopleg 2com or call 800-630-2880 that's 800-630-2880 or peopleg 2com
1: welcome back to the talent talk radio show don't forget you can connect with us on social media you can follow us at on twitter at people g2 and be a part of the conversation right now if you'd like to follow along with the live tweeting or maybe if you're listening after the fact you can uh You can uh, even comment there as well. You can certainly keep track of us at talenttalkradio.com or wherever you find our podcasts, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify. There's a gazillion of them out there. Just pick one and subscribe, and then you'll never miss another episode. All right, we're going to go ahead and bring in my second guest, uh, Steve Oren. He is the federal CTO at Intel. Uh, And uh, Steve, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Good to be here, Chris. Why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself, what you do, what's important for us to know about our conversation, uh, you know, about you for our conversation today.
4: Uh, Sure. And so as mentioned, um, I'm the federal CTO or Chief Technology Officer for Intel Corporation. And in that role, it's my job to help the federal government understand both today and the future technology and architecture that Intel and its ecosystem brings to bear, as well as take the input from the federal government across civilian, military and intelligence and its ecosystem back inside Intel so they can better understand the needs, use cases and requirements and really help divide, uh, uh, drive solutions and architectures that solve those mission and enterprise style needs.
1: Well, that, that sounds like an amazing opportunity to really do some some, some cool stuff. I mean, I, I could say that sounds like a really tough job, and I could say that sounds like a, an overwhelming challenge, but I, I think it kind of sounds exciting. I mean, you have ability to impact the lives of hundreds of millions of people, right, by helping the government get it just even just a little bit better it's a little bit right right
4: <laughs> absolutely it is truly and it, it does cover just about every kind of use case from c- citizen services to uh, you know scale platforms and everything in between so it it's never a dull moment
1: right well that's i guess that, that's a good way to work it's never a dull moment <laughs> So, you know, what, what really drives you then to, to innovate? You have, you have a lot of probably different stakeholders. You have lots of different initiatives, things that are going on. How, how do you sort of focus then on, you know, I guess, it, that innovative part?
4: Well, for me, it really comes down to a couple of fundamental things. Uh, for me, what really excites me about innovations is being able to solve problems. Um, and the challenge of being able to tackle those hard problems. And they don't always have to be the big hairy problems, you know, boil the ocean, big human problems. Sometimes it's the small problems that are just a little bit of innovation provides that efficiency that actually gets things done. Um, And so really it's about coming up with those approaches. And for me, you know, throughout my career, Oftentimes it's coming out with those, what they call the outside the box style approaches, coming at the problem from a different angle um, and finding solutions, finding ways of doing things or building new technologies or new approaches. that ultimately have impact. Like you mentioned, the the thing that really excites me about this job and about my previous roles is about being able to impact on the market or impact on people's lives. When you make the IRS more efficient, that means taxes get returned faster. When you make the you know the Department of uh, Transportation better, it means bridges get built better. So everything gets better if you can help them solve their big enterprise and mission challenges. And it goes across all aspects of government. Um, and then the other key thing is that what you can do for the government, which is sometimes a vanguard of the broader industry, what works for them will be needed by other industries. They have a lot of the other industry, whether it be regulated industries like financial services or healthcare or industrial, have many of the same use cases and can leverage those innovations that we build for government to really spawn, uh, spawn new capabilities out into the broader marketplace.
1: You know, one of the challenges I, I think I've seen for uh, the the IT department or for anyone who's maybe trying to help uh, an organization or a company solve is that, you know, there's there's a lot that gets lost. It's like the old telephone game, right, in, in, in school where the first thing said is not the last thing that somebody hears. And so you can easily go back and create the perfect solution and it ends up not even – Addressing the original problem, right? So you need really, really great people—engineers and architects—and people who can really understand what is needed. And, and so, how do you find those people? Because that feels like a—I don't want to say a needle in a haystack, but certainly, certainly, uh, you know, it, it, there's not, there's not—they're not growing on trees, right? <laughs>
4: <laughs> so there, there, are a couple of things you look for there, Chris. Um, you want to find independent thinkers, um, ones that are going to sort of uh, take ownership and go do try things. Mm-hmm. um but you want those independent thinkers working together across different domains of expertise you want them to know something really really well but th- with that is the, also the willingness to learn i found some of the best innovators uh maybe an expert in one field but they're also open to learning about new things and then taking their experiences and applying them to other places and those that's where innovation happens a lot of times it's coming out a problem from a completely different domain or a completely different set of experiences that sees, oh well, you've been doing it this way because that's how you've been taught to do it. There's another way because I've seen it work over here, um, and so that willingness to learn and willingness to take risks. Um, and you're right, there 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 are few and far between. But when you take when you are looking for those things, then you you identify them and then you foster those people, you groom you grow those people, you enable those people. Um, and they will bring along and, and help mentor the next generation. And so I think it's finding those uh, those unique individuals, but then helping them create their, you know, cloning themselves amongst their peer set, and amongst the next generation.
1: Yeah, and I, I you think you kind of really hit on something that we have heard over and over and over again. The hundreds of interviews we've done on this show is that we're looking for lifelong learners. We're looking for people who want to continue to learn, and we're looking for people who are curious, right? That they, To your point, they may be have had all the education and all the experience in this one area but can still be totally curious about something new and be able to take some of that energy and, and put it into to a new place and i guess i would i wonder what why do some people not have that I, I i'm not i'm not sure you know where does that sort of get stifled or destroyed but it does seem to be the hallmark the cornerstone of this of, the, of these top performing people that a lot of our guests seem to to talk about. Do you have any ideas on maybe why this sort of gets lost for some people?
4: I think there could be a couple of reasons. People could get stuck in doing what they call the development rut, where they're doing a lot of the same things over and over and aren't sparked with that opportunity um, to innovate. Um, I can tell you that it doesn't mean, just because someone currently isn't an independent thing, doesn't mean they can't get there. Um, uh, A lot of times it's about pairing them and giving them uh, what I call the air cover to go off and try things without being held to a lot of people, especially in the development environment, classic development environments, you're held to a very tight schedule. You have to produce this many lines of code or this many modules to meet their functional requirements in a given time. That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for innovation unless you're trying to fix a bug. And so being able to help pair them with with some of those existing innovative thinkers, thinkers, but also give them tasks that aren't go build me this module, but try to figure out a way to make the module more efficient or what are other ways we could architect this, give them some opportunity to think differently um, without any consequences to the, to the schedule. And that's part of how you enable people to start changing and getting out of those ruts, I would think.
1: And then I think the next part would have to be now that you've identified these great people, now you have, you know, two, three, four, whatever the number of people is that you need to, to really excel. uh, Then how do you have, a good team, right? I mean, this is something we see in sports all the time. You can have five of the best all-stars together, and they could be terrible, right? Because they don't know how to share <laughs> the ball, or, or the, the you're, they're too a uh, one-sided in particular skill sets. So, how, how do you then sort of transfer them as, into being an innovative team?
4: That's a really interesting question. Um, part of what makes innovation teams successful is being able to enable them to do that innovation. Um, the way I like to talk about it is, you point them in the right direction. You get out of the way and provide the right air cover and so how you enable them to operate is that you get those independent thinkers those innovators give them a juicy problem point them at the 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 area that they need to go focus and then let them do don't micromanage them Um, but you want to provide that air cover so that they can go off and try things without having without having to worry about someone staring over them or product deadlines that would trump innovation but one of the things that I find, and this is after years and years of looking at various different uh, innovation teams I've had, the most successful ones are highly diverse teams. And mm-hmm. it's not only the diversity that we talk about a lot today of having you know, sort of mo- multiple ethnic and gender backgrounds on the same, because the people diff- think differently, have different experiences, but also diversity of experience, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of domains. You know if you're doing you know security solutions having security experts but also having enterprise experts having cloud experts having firmware experts that maybe don't know anything about security but understand the different aspects of the problem and can come at it from new ways and then the other thing is having you know some of those you know star points point guards and having defensive players so you want to have a mix people who know how to pump out code really fast and real and and be able to mm-hmm. build solid efficient not buggy code and people who Probably build carbon code, but they, they do some really cool things. You marry those together. And the cross-pollinization, I think one of my favorite examples is early in my career, I was building a mainframe security company. And so we had some crypto engineers who were so young and I understand all the math and cryptography. And then we had some mainframe engineers that had been working in the industry for 30 years, had been working on mainframes since the 60s. And we married them together. And what came from that was both sides pollinating each other. And I think that's the kind of thing you get with diverse teams. Is both sides, you know, everyone raises everyone else's boat.
1: Yeah, and and that's a really amazing uh, kind of way to think about it. And we we've seen this in so many different aspects. I mean, we we saw that early on when millennials were coming into the work workforce that they were being paired up right with with more senior people to teach them how to use all these different technologies and to understand what social meant and, and like, so it was a way to like take, and then at the same time, those millennials were saying, I was getting this incredible mentoring about my career and how to be a leader and like, and so by bringing them together and, and allowing them that cross pollination, I guess was, was really, really important as opposed to, I guess, send them all independently to some training to, to deal with their weakness or where they have a, a gap in their, in their stuff. Right. Let them work together.
4: Absolutely. Um, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So you, you find the right people, you get your team going, and I'm imagine the next challenge might be, well, how does that work in scale? Right. Now you start getting all these projects, all these things coming in. So how do you manage that part of it?
4: So there are a couple of ways to come at the scaling problem and really how do you how do you make successful innovation happen? Part one is map to real problems. So make sure that there's something substantial so when they do have an answer, when they do come up with a solution, it makes an impact, whether it be to the organization, to the customer, to your partners, make sure there's a mapping to real problems. And one of the things I've learned, and, and a lot of folks, uh, both in big companies and small companies, forget to do this, is you make sure from the get-go you have a, a, what we call a diffusion plan. So you're going to go off and try something. You're going to innovate. You're going to come up with a product, uh, a demo or proof of concept, a prototype, and you're going to show, hey, it, does, it gets the job done. It solves the problem. It gives you 50% better performance, whatever the thing is. You have to have already thought about what, what do you, what's next. How are you going to get it into the hands of real customers? How are you going to sell it? How are you, whatever that tri- diffusion from the innovation team to the real world. What is the mechanism? You don't have to have it all figured out, but you have to have a plan. You have to know who the key stakeholders are that would take it from you to mature it because most innovation teams are just that. They're good at doing rapid innovation, but they're not necessarily the team you'd want to go productize something and and be able to build it something that could run on 40 million laptops. And so having a plan for how you then transfer the technology, transfer the innovation to a more of a production scale. Along with that though, is I think one of the other key things is getting stakeholder buy-in and education early. When I've seen a lot of these, uh, especially in government and in large organizations, they, you know, build these little innovation selves and they keep them so far away from the rest of the business so that no one can bother them that they get disconnected from the business. And when they come up with something, the business owners either get a not invented here syndrome or they are like, well, this doesn't really apply to what I'm doing. One of the real uh, keys to success is getting those stakeholders bought in from the get-go by both providing, here are my big challenges to go solve, but then also having some of their people involved in the design so that that they are learning of what's being innovated, makes it easier for them to consume it once the innovation process is done. And then the last one one I'm sure you've heard from lots of people, and I can't stress enough, is reward trying things. What that means is Mm. failure is good. You know, they talk about fail fast, fail often, fail forward. But at the end of the day, one of the key things that has to change at a a corporate or uh, institutional level is to understand that you learn from your failures. And so if you fail 100 times getting to the 101st, those failures are not failures they're actually really good learning about how to do things different ways and i've seen examples where the 51st failure while it didn't solve the problem when we go to the next innovation they learned something on the last one that then they applied from that last one. Well, it didn't work here but it does work there and so i think institutionally rewarding failure rewarding trying things is the way i like to say it um is an absolutely important thing to do
1: yeah and and it makes perfect sense when you're inventing when you're creating, uh, and I, th- I think people intuitively understand that us trying things and making mistakes and, you know, that those things can be great learnings. I think with the challenges is for people maybe who are in jobs where that's not the first part of what they're doing, then we see organizations really stifle them around trying new things and and, and all of that because I mean, it makes sense. I mean, how how do we get a really crappy glue that we end up putting on the back of a Post-it? It was just a totally huge mistake. It was it was a gigantic failure in making a glue, um, you know. And, and if they hadn't documented that at 3M, that wouldn't have been discovered years later when some guy wanted to post his his choir uh, uh, song sheet on a on a piece of on a, on a like a bracket, right? And so, but if you didn't track it, if you didn't reward, mm-hmm. if you didn't think about how does this happen? But I always want to challenge organizations to think about it, not just in the context that you described it, but across mm-hmm. the organization as a whole, because it's important everywhere.
4: Absolutely. That's a really good point.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, the other uh, thing I'm wondering is, you see, you, you guys are probably getting thrown all sorts of different challenges, especially during COVID. You maybe had some, some things you never thought you'd get, but you can't always be just you know, going out and trying to grab someone from some other organization, uh, you know, and you can't always rely on just being able to pick up someone who just came out of school. So at what level are you just intel and are you fostering sort of this entrepreneurship? right? Where you're trying to get people to, to develop internally, to take on new projects or do things where you can maybe level them up over time.
4: So there are a couple of ways to come at that. And I think um, I'll give you a couple of examples that we've done and that we've done over my career and I've seen successfully implemented in other organizations. Uh, one, first and foremost, you have to build it in. If you want to be able to foster an innovation, there's a famous example of Google having the 10% rule um, where 10% of your time could be on whatever fun projects you want. But if you think about it more around the innovation and entrepreneurship is giving people built in the time to go try things and to be able to, to innovate on various different spaces. The other thing, and I think that Intel does very well is, and whether you call it creating the the Tiger team environment or the incubation cells, is you rotate engineers and rotate managers and product managers into Tiger teams, where we're going to go solve some big problem, we're going to go make, you know, the the design process faster, we're going to go try to do AI for something interesting. And you build a tiger team and let, and bring the diverse group together, task them and get and give them ownership. And I think that's the foundational thing where you see real innovation happen is when you give them the, give a team a project and they get to own it, and they get to drive it, and they get the credit for it when it is successful, and they get the credit for the trying and uh, the learnings they've done. And the process there is again, you're not going to be able to pull it and create an, a full-time incubation cell or an innovation cell in large organizations, especially when you have you know rapid product deadlines but you build these sort of tiger teams that people can rotate into, and that they can spend six months you know, sort of learning how to do something different and then bring that back to their teams. And what I found really successful, I mean, obviously the, the tiger team itself went off and did some really cool things, but then those people go back to their business units recharged, wow. refreshed with right. the knowledge of, hey, we just did this really cool thing with AI. Let me tell you about how to use AI. And oh, let me tell you how we did this cool thing. And so you're sort of creating that viral approach of bringing engineers and training them on this, on these cool or giving them the opportunities. Then they go back to their business students and they pollinate for you. This is
1: really phenomenal because I, I, I love both what you're saying, but I also wanted to To just make a quick note, so years ago, my co-author and I developed this idea of the Tiger Team, and we have had it in organizations, and I don't know how it floated around the universe, (laughs) but now you're back telling me about a Tiger Team, and I'm like, this is the most amazing day ever, because we just gave it a funny name, because we wanted people to remember it, and here it's it's gone around the world, so uh, that that, that was pretty fun to hear, so I really appreciate
4: it. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Well, how have things been different for, for you guys with COVID, especially, you know, around internal innovation? I'm really fascinated to know if you, you saw a difference with people being remote versus maybe how they were traditionally working. How has that sort of looked for, for you guys?
4: That's a very interesting one. Um, COVID threw some really unique challenges. Um, and in the innovation world, we saw in the very early days a lot of rapid innovation because suddenly you had to get your remote workforce up and running. You had to be able to give them services, get people meeting, in weeks you had to be able to change the way organizations run and especially when you talk about government customers that are used to working in buildings oftentimes with no windows and secured facilities how do you enable a workforce that's remote um and so there was a lot of rapid innovation early on to be able to get people you know and even the companies or the organizations that had like a 10 percent remote workforce to move to a 90%, 100% remote mm-hmm. required massive innovations in scaling, the services offering, security collaboration, You know, figuring out what's the right combination of Zoom and WebEx and Teams and what, what, what to do. Um, we saw some amazing innovation um, at the Air Force, as an example, where they built, they took some work that they've been doing on being able to do secure uh, client systems out in the field and rapidly innovated into a box where they could enable a large—I mean, over 100,000 of their uh, uh, Air Force employees and and uh, servicemen and women to be able to work remotely with in a secure fashion with classified information. Um, And so being able to enable them to go fully remote while still being able to do the business of the Air Force, which it requires a level of security that you don't typically find, you know, at your house with, you know, 12 kids running around on the Wi-Fi network. Those were some of the major innovations that had to happen early. I think we'll see a new wave of innovation, probably starting in the fall, going into the next year, looking at how do we address the new normal. Mm-hmm. What is that? What, what stuff are we going to do? Okay, we got to stop doing that. But there, there's a lot we learned as part of this transition to remote worker, and the, the the teaming and collaboration that had to happen the type of cloud services that people started to adopt. It's not all going to get thrown away. And so I think we're going to see some innovations about what is that new normal? And how do we enable it? The downside is, at least for me, a lot of the really best innovations happen with a group of people in a room with a whiteboard. And it, as good as you can try to make that in a virtual meeting, you just don't have the same experience of sitting on a whiteboard, coming up with something, and then having someone come and erase that and say, "No, that's wrong. You do it this way." So that I think that was one of the harder parts for innovation teams in the COVID world was that co- team collaboration. I've seen some amazing technologies that were probably you know just little demos that suddenly got some funding and. Uh, you know, Mural and others where they uh, come up with mechanisms to try to enable that whiteboard experience for team collaboration. Um, and we got we got some effective meetings out of that. Um, but I think that the return to work, we're going to see a lot more innovation back going on to the whiteboard again.
1: And, you know, it's funny because I realized it. So we're 100% remote and we do very, very little ever together. But when we are together, it's not the that someone can go up in a race on the whiteboard, it's that I can see their full body and I can get all the body language. Mm-hmm. And so we did find that for certain teams, it was important for us to get together once a year, twice a year, maybe a quarterly, uh, just to have that insight, right? Because we, we could get almost everything done all the time, 100% remote, but it was important sometimes to, to see someone crossing their legs and their <laughs> arms as you were telling them this idea, right? And you're like, hmm, maybe you're not quite on board. Mm. You know, I can see that.
4: <laughs> it's interesting, there there were a bunch of startups that uh, came out over the last year that are doing using various different uh, visual AIs to try to detect those sentiment, uh, right. to be able to see the micro-expressions and be able to give you indicators, you're losing your audience, you've got your audience, uh, <laughs> they love the joke, things like, so there's actually a whole bunch of AIs that uh, yes. startups specific looking at that problem in a virtual environment.
1: That's very cool. Just some amazing things. So if you ever hear any of those, please let me know. I'd love to have them on the show. I'd love to to, to dive into what the Air Force did. That sounds amazing. Uh, We were really surprised when we were working on the book that we released this year about remote work that we found that the United States Marine Corps was actually the most effective trainers amongst any organization in training people remotely to be ready to do a job. And, and so we did a huge case study on them because I, I, it was a shock to me. I thought it would be someone like Google or, you know, mm. some, somebody you would naturally think of, right? No, here it is, the United States Marine Corps. that They train people so well that they can suddenly be put together and then execute perfectly uh, on a mission or initiative and get it done uh, to, to a degree. I mean, because it's life and death, right? It's not, it's not just, well, did this did this service work well or, you know, did this website look nice? I guess it made the the stakes a little higher, but anyways, it's not
4: I'm sure it was. I'd be lo- I look forward to reading that because I think the Marine Corps does have, you know, they, they are very effective of how they communicate, how they package up, what needs to get, they're very mission focused. And so I could see them transitioning to another mechanism like virtual and being able to just cut and paste and do. Because uh, yeah. uh, when you put a Marine on a problem, they will go solve it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do have a highly motivated, very uh, high achieving workforce too, as well. So that, that, that that's certainly helping. Well, we're, we're almost out of time here. I want to make sure we ask our final two important questions. And the first is Is there a book that you're reading or you, you, you tend to suggest people check out?
4: So that's, I, I will give you the I'm currently reading uh, the latest book by Bruce Schneier called Click Here to Kill Everybody. Uh, Bruce Schneier is a, a, a longtime writer in the security and, and both on the politics and on the technology side. And his latest book, I've just started reading, uh, is sort of looking at the world of the truly interconnected nature of all of our infrastructure and what that means. Um, the book I recommend to all of my teams to read and all of the people I mentor is uh, a classic that was really useful to me early in my career uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great. Uh, that, that one. Affected the way I ran startups. It affects the way I do biz, I do teams now. It just still resonates with me.
1: God, you got to have that BHAG or else you don't know where you're going, right? Got to have it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, most important question. How can people find out more about you, learn more about your work if they're interested in, in doing that or reaching out? What's the best way for them to, to find out more about, about you?
4: The best way to find me is on LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn slash O R R That is the best way to reach out to me and just uh, do a connect. I'd be happy to respond.
1: Steve, thank you so much for being a part of the show today and sharing so much about what you're working on. Sounds like you have your hands full, but you're making a big difference for all of us here uh, in helping the government be a little bit more efficient. So thank you so much, sir.
4: Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure being here today.
1: All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Hopefully you've gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.